When I was in seminary, I had a class, dreaded class for all incoming students, known to be really difficult, Hebrew, introductory Hebrew, and uh, just a lot of, any, any kind of language you do, you know, there's just a ton of memorization. You're catching up from things that people know from childhood that you don't know if it's not your native tongue. And so there are these steps that you just have to take, and you just go full force into it, and it's just a ton of memorization, and you don't even have any idea what you're memorizing or why you're memorizing until much later. Well, one of these chapters came up that was uh, known to be kind of a dreaded chapter, a chapter that brought a lot of anxiety on some students, and it was, I think it was chapter 14, and our professor, he came in, and he had this hat on, and he had these sunglasses on, and he had a pipe in his mouth. And he comes in, he says, boys, we're taking the hill. And that was what he called that chapter. He said, we're taking the hill, we're, we're going after it because it's a ton of work and you just kind of got to go after it. I don't know if you guys have read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 much in your life, but I kind of feel like this is the hill. And what we're going to do, even in our weariness and stuff, we're, we're going to take it. So let's, let's take the hill. I, I think that God will be glorified in us putting ourselves into this and going after it. And so would you just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and read this passage with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's just as though her head were shaved. And if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. And a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man." For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair is a disgrace to him? But it, that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. And if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, it is an unbelievable kindness of you to let us be here, hear about who you are, and to describe to us how we are to organize our lives and live in such a way that would bring honor and glory to you. We have your word in front of us, a feast of, of knowledge of who you are so that we can know you and love you. And I pray that you would help us to give ourselves to this. Father, bring us face to face with yourself in 1 Corinthians 11. We're listening to your word. And I pray that you would speak. God, you are worthy of us giving ourselves to this hill that we might hear and understand and live for you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to avoid distraction during this time and to put ourselves into this, not to listen to me, but so that we might hear from you. So, God, speak as your people 
Listen, we love you. Thank you for your word. Use it. Amen. Well, yesterday was, was 4th of July, and if you've enjoyed your 4th of July, some people like to celebrate it in different ways. You Fireworks, John puts on the best show around, right? That's one good way to enjoy the 4th of July. But I've noticed that like some, some celebrations and some ways that people celebrate are, are different. You know, so 4th of July can bring up some interesting head coverings. So if you kind of look up here, I have a few interesting head coverings for you. This guy, he looks pretty happy, you know. Got the Uncle Sam style hat here, pretty big. This is a pretty classic. This guy here, he's uh, rocking out the peace sign on top of his head. That's a pretty good head covering. I didn't see any of these at the party last night. So if you did wear one of these, like make sure you post that somewhere. This is, yeah, this is the, the baby post. Just can't, You want to put head covering on the, on the baby. Feel free. There's, there's 4th of July head coverings for them as well. Women, this is your style right here. I'm not sure why they couldn't get a live model for this, why they had to use the mannequin. <laughs> a little creepy, but like you, you get the idea. Like interesting head covering right there. Pretty good. And this is my favorite. This guy's, if you want to be really cool, that's what you go with. The red, white, and blue mohawk. And of course, that guy is really cool and having a great time with it. Fourth of July can, can bring out some interesting head coverings. And and you look at those, you may not take a lot of issue with any of those head coverings. Maybe you do. Maybe you're like, that is just annoying and you probably shouldn't wear that head covering. But Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 kind of starts to cover this topic of head coverings. And there is something that he takes issue with in this Corinthian church as they talk about head coverings. Because something is going on in Corinth and, and it's really kind of starting to come to a head. What's going on is that there's this breaking down of the distinction between the genders. And so it surfaces through this issue of, of head coverings in public worship. And so head coverings is, is, an, is a symptom of a bigger issue. It's a symptom of a bigger problem that's going on in Corinth. And so Paul is addressing head coverings, but he'll address much, much more than that. See, what he's doing here in this passage is he's addressing a cultural issue with an abiding principle. And so even as we look at this passage, and as we read through it, you're probably like, what does that mean? Like, all right, I'm right there with you all week, right? We don't get a lot of it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But, but I think if, we, if you take the hill with me, like you'll see the abiding principle. You'll see something that is clear here, although there are some things that are very unclear. And what is clear here is that Paul is calling believers in these, this church in Corinth and, and even us here today to abide by the created design that has been given by this amazing designer. Because there is a design and it's good and there is a designer and he's good and he has certain roles and functions for genders specifically. And so that's what we're going to dive into. And I think that you'll see that this is a lot more clear passage than what you thought. But that there was a problem going on in Corinth is kind of an understatement. And what is happening is he turns in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He starts to look toward public worship, corporate worship, the gathering of the church together. He starts to address some of the issues that are going on there. And this is really going to happen from chapter 11 through chapter 14. Now, if you remember in verse 31 of chapter 10, Paul just told them, you, everything you do, whether you're eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. And here we go into, into corporate worship. Whether you're going to corporate worship and the things you're wearing, do all those things for the glory of God. And now he's going to tell them how to do it in corporate settings and corporate worship. So he starts in verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. So this is kind of a, a good introductory statement for the next three or four chapters here, chapters 11 through 14. He's, he's even still, even now, coming to them, uh, commending them of things, giving them some praise for some things. And he says, though, there's a few things that, that are a little bit off. So he starts and addresses the good, but he also wants to address the issues. And that's where he starts in verse 3. He says, 
I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, right when we start this passage, we have to kind of set out for us, what does it mean to be the head of something? What is the definition used for this word head here? Now, we have lots of different ways we could go, but really there are two basic camps when we talk about what it means to be the head. And those camps kind of divide up in that head means authority or that head means source, as of the source of a river. It's the beginning and it flows downhill. And so the head is either the source or the authority. Now, I think, and we, we don't have time to, to run through every single argument. I hope you guys can do that in home groups if you have more questions. But if you look at other Greek literature at the time, the way they used the word, I think that you can see some evidence that's, that's pretty clear that, that this word means authority. If you look in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you look back at some of the ways that this word was used. It was used in that authoritative sense. But even more than that, what we need to look at is the, the immediate context. And even beyond that, how does Paul use it? What does he say about this word? And so that's what we're going to do. We'll look at a few uses that Paul has of this word head. So if you see Ephesians 5.22 and following, he says, Wives... Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and he goes on. So it's clear there, submission is involved even in that, that, that sentence, even in that uh, verse there in Ephesians chapter 5, and it's clear that th- that is an authoritative head, that they have one that, that you must submit to this authority. If you look in Ephesians 1.22, God has placed all things, speaking of Jesus, under his feet And appointed him to be the head of everything. Not just the source. He is the authority of all things. He can command all things. This is who Jesus is. So if you look in Colossians 2.10. One more example from Paul and we could go on. But he's talking again of Jesus. He is the head over every power and authority. Though you see that that, that Paul has laid out even kind of the way he uses it. is, Is this authoritative word. Head means authority. Now, I do want to say that these aren't mutually exclusive definitions. You can't just say this is completely head and not source at all. But I think you'll see in 1 Corinthians 11, he's going to make an argument from source, but he doesn't use the same word. And he's making an argument as head, as authority here. And I think you'll see that this is, is clear because even in this context, I mean, what true meaning, what, what depth of meaning could it really have if he meant authority or if he didn't mean authority? If he meant source, what would this passage mean? I think you could see that it would be a little confusing. And so he says, The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Jesus is God. And what he's speaking of is this authoritative head. This is an authoritative position. So Paul, in this verse, verse 3, he lays out this principle for us, this important principle. And and the idea that he's getting at, this abiding principle that he wants us to know, is that there is a divine ordering, there is a divine uh, function and design in relationships between male and female. This is is the abiding principle, and so this is what we want to make sure is clear. And and note in verse 3 that as he gives this abiding principle that there's distinctions between male and female, that there are different functions and roles here, that he roots it in something. And what is he rooted in? Roots it in the Trinity. He says, God is the head, or the head of Christ is God. And so what Paul is doing with this principle is he's not just saying this is just this cultural thing, this is what happens in Corinth. No, he's saying this is a Trinitarian thing. This is a God thing. This isn't something that's just for this time and then passing. This is from eternity past. This is how relationships are to be ordered because it's rooted in the Trinity. And so it's not a result of the fall. 
It's not as if sin entered the world and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, now we got to figure out our roles and function. No, this isn't a result of the fall. This is a result of God and who he is in eternity past and eternity future. And so when we see this abiding principle in, in verse 3, we know that this isn't specifically a cultural thing. This is an abiding principle. This is for us today. And so there are differing functions or roles that are part of God's good design for genders. The principle here in verse 3 has to do with function. And it's important to divide that out. He's not speaking of equality here. He's not speaking of your essence here. He's not saying one has a greater essence and, and one is more important than the other. He's speaking of function. He's speaking of role here. And it's part of God's good design for gender. It's not, has, it does not have to do with worth or being. And we're going to see this more and more. But the genders, by divine design, are to have different functions and different roles. They're not different in worth. They're not different in essence. They're not different in being. They are different in function and role. And it's important to see that. And it's important to know that those difference in function and role is rooted in God himself. Who exists as one God in three persons. Who is fully God, but also Three persons. It's just incomprehensible truth. And within this Godhead, within this Trinity, what you have is one God, equal in essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all completely equal in essence, but different in function, different in role. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, the Father's not the Spirit, and likewise. We could just go around and around. They, they do different things. And it's important that we see that when we start to talk about, are they equal? Are these male and female, is there equality there? Well, is there equality within the Trinity? yes. The Father is important, the Son is important, the Spirit is important. We don't want to raise up one or the other. They're all one, and so we raise them up. We say they are equal in essence. We worship them as being God. We don't say one is above the other, but they serve different functions. Jesus came to the earth. The Father didn't come to the earth. Jesus came to the earth and manifested the Father. We could go on and on here, but you could see that within the Trinity, we ought to know these two great categories, these two pillars of the Trinity, equality and distinction. Equality and distinction in role. There's equal in essence, distinct in function. And this has all sorts of implications for the Christian life. All sorts of implications. There's an order to things based on who God is. And this is how we're to live these things out. And so we take our cue in how to live and how to work within relationships and how to work within different genders, not from the culture primarily but from God and who he is, from the Trinity. And so he says of males, he says of man, he's the head of women. Male is head. So there's authority there. So men are to be these authoritative people in proper ways. But we know of all godly men, of all men who hold proper place of authority, that they are also under submission under Christ himself. Jesus is the head of man, and the godly man puts himself in humble submission to his head, Amen. which is Christ. But what we do see here is that there is something different about being male than being female in terms of function. There is a headship role to this. And so we would point to passages like this to say to men, you are the head of your family. You are the authority in your family. It is, you are responsible for the direction there. You are responsible for leading them, providing for them, protecting them. You can point to this passage and say, you are the head of your marriage. You are responsible for your wife spiritually to lead her, to provide for her, to protect her. And we can point to this passage and say, this is why we have male pastors within the church. There's lots of passages we use, but we can definitely point here and say male is to be the head of things and we see that is connected clearly to 
to pastoral leadership within the church. And so we can point here and say, yes, this is another thing that we say, the male is to be the head here under the submission of Christ, but there's a different function here, and it's not rooted in men just wanting to be in charge. It's rooted in God himself, and we want to live according to his design. And so when we talk about these things, I mean, happy 4th of July, but we're not making apologies for the distinctions here. This is, we are imaging the Godhead. We are imaging God in being the head, or we are imaging God in being in submission. And so we make no apologies at Sojourn for saying these things. So women are to be in submission underneath authority of a godly man in the right ways. So wife, be submissive to your husband. Daughters, be submissive to your father. Within the church setting, be submissive to pastors. We can point to passages for all of those, and we don't make apologies for any one of them because you're imaging God in doing those things who also submitted, who also came to earth as Jesus said, I just want to do the will of my father. He's submitting to the grand architect, the will of his father. And in that, women submit, they are following in the line of their savior. And so in doing this for both of us, in our different functions, we submit to God and bring him glory. He is honored when we keep these distinctions the way they are. The flattening out of distinctions between the genders, the flattening out of these differences that we have in role, it not only rages against the design of gender, but it's raging against the creator himself. It's not just the design we're going against, it's the designer. We're going against him when we go against this design. The, the truth is, people don't want to talk about this, the truth is there's freedom and joy in abiding in the design, abiding in the way God has made us. There's not freedom outside of it. And so flattening out gender roles and differences between the genders at home or in the church or wherever you are, it has led us in a bad direction. We could talk more about that. It goes in a lot of ways. But flattening out has led to all sorts of things that have caused havoc within the church and with homes. And cars, they're made to run on gas, most of them. There's some diesel cars out there. My car, I put gas in the tank. If it said one day to me, you know what? You drink a lot of Dr. Pepper. That looks really good. I would like to have Dr. Pepper put into my tank. And if I just all right, Dr. Pepper goes in your tank. You're good to go. What would it do? It wouldn't run, Right? Cars don't run on Dr. Pepper. They're not made for that. That's not their design. They're not made to do that. And so pretty soon it's going to leave someone stranded on the side of the road. And this is exactly what happens when we flatten these functions out. You're not made to be like that. And so what it's going to do when you think that it's offering you freedom, you think that it's going to be something that you will enjoy, it will leave you in wreckage. Because there's a design and there's a designer and you were made for certain things. He made them male and female, and that was good. And so the abiding principle that the, the Bible gives us here is that there's an order to relationships, and that that order is, is good. There's differences in these genders. They have different functions and different roles, and these roles should be celebrated and seen within our relationships between male and female. So this is verse 3. This is important. This is the abiding principle before we get into all the confusing stuff. We have to know this. So the abiding principle, but it has implications for the church. It has implications for corporate worship. It has implications for us as men and women. So what Paul does is he takes this abiding principle. So he'll, he'll come back to it again. He takes it and he shows us some cultural applications for Corinth. I think we'll, we'll try to make this as clear as we can, what's cultural and what's not. But if you look, he takes it and he applies it. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off 
And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. Now, you might notice that I'm not using the ESV. Uh, it's different. So if you're reading the ESV, it's a little different now. Because I think the NIV is a little bit more clear here with the language. Because it says husband and wife in the ESV. And the NIV says man or woman. There's probably other translations that said man or woman. But the translation is man and woman. And I think you'll see why that's a, a noticeable difference here as we go through it. It makes it less confusing. But notice that both men and women are fully involved in this corporate setting. They're both prophesying. They're both praying. They're fully involved in corporate worship. Now, I'm not going to get into prophesying all that stuff yet. That's coming. Chapter 14. Hang with us. We'll get there. Don't have time for that today. We're climbing another hill. But there's order here. There's order in their corporate worship, in their gathering together. There's order to what they are doing. Jesus is the authority of men. And so he says they shouldn't wear a head covering, but women should wear it. And so to go against this culturally means that they are dishonoring their head. They're dishonoring themselves, but also the one who is the authority over them. Why? Why? Why would you not wearing a head covering uh, for the women or wearing one for the men be dishonoring to the head? Well, I think some cultural background is important here. It's helpful to know what's going on. What's going on in Corinth is that there's a problem with women wearing their hair down and wearing it loose. Apparently, this was something that was tied very closely to adultery. Even going back into the Old Testament, they cite some sources, Numbers 5 and a couple other places, where it's kind of tied into adultery, and it was considered shameful to do this. Shameful to wear your hair down and loose. It was as if you were kind of showing off your beauty, showing everyone how great your hair was, because this is not what respectful women did at the time. Now, Maybe, maybe some of these, these cult prostitutes coming out of this pagan Corinth were converted and were used to wearing their hair like that and coming in and not knowing the idea of what was to go on. And Paul's saying, hey, don't wear your hair down because that is tying. People are seeing adultery here. They're seeing signs of that there. So he says, don't, don't do that. But it would be kind of like for us today if women came in with, with a, a bathing suit on to corporate worship. It would be strange, wouldn't it? It would make us think, like, what, what are you trying to do? Like, why are you trying to make everybody look at you? We don't wear bikinis into corporate worship. And that was kind of the idea then. Wearing your hair down was the same idea. It doesn't jive with corporate worship. It's not going together. It was causing an issue. You know, we even have that phrase, you know, here today. You know, kind of just let your hair loose. Let it down. Let your hair down. Be free. It just means to be, have no, in it, no, no problems. Just do whatever you want. Be carefree and don't worry about it. Now, for us today, that's not real literal. Now, no one thought that my wife was being crazy when she let her hair down today. Like, it's pretty normal. Like, she's not breaking any social standards by doing that. No one thinks that she's rebelling against her gender role or anything like that. But for them, it was different. For them, it meant something to do that. For men, it meant that they were rebelling against that. Respectable women, they didn't appear in public with their hair down like that. And so Paul is addressing this. To them, it had connotations of adultery. To us, it doesn't. To them, it had connotations of, of bucking against gender distinctions. And so this is why he says, if you're not going to do this, you're not going to cover your head, and you're going to let your hair down, you might as well shave it off. And he's not saying go ahead and do that. He's saying that you're, you're looking like a man. You're breaking down these distinctions that are supposed to be there. And so you might as well shave your head. And he says that's to their shame. So part of the distinction between genders was, was hair and, and head coverings. So not having one was showing some rebellion against this gender distinction that God had created. So this is for women. But Paul says for women, they ought to cover their heads. And likely what he's talking about is some sort of shawl they would have had. He's saying, put a shawl on, put your hair up in a bun. That's how women that were respectable at that time, that's how they come to corporate worship so as not to draw attention to themselves. Why? Why do they need to do that? Why do the women need to have a symbol on top of their head of authority in their lives? Why do they need to wear a covering? 
That was how a woman adorned themselves, to show that they are in submission to God and the distinctions within the genders and in submission to proper biblical headship. That's how a woman woman adorned herself within the divine design of femininity. And so if you were to, at that time, agree with God that you have distinct roles from a man, if you were to agree with God that you should be in submission to proper biblical headship, then this is what you did. You, You wore your hair up and you put a shawl on top of it. So we know that if you wear a crown, it has some sort of symbolism to it. It means you have authority, that you have ways that you can reign and rule. And this is the, the, the symbol of the head covering, that you were underneath authority. That was the symbol for them. He says for men, they aren't to cover their heads. Why? Simply put, because that, that's what women did. You're different. Don't try to look like a woman, and women don't try to look like a man. For a man to wear a shawl, to a man to wear a head covering, was to depict himself as a woman. And for a woman not to wear one was kind of to depict herself as a man. So what you're doing there is you're showing that you're against, you're defiant of the divine design. So in other words, in corporate worship, outward adornment, the way you carry yourself, the way you fix your hair and dress, it matters. It matters because you were created. And there's an order to this creation, and it matters especially when you come for corporate worship. And so head coverings, they were this cultural application of an abiding principle that were part of gender distinctions. Today, wearing a head covering or or wearing your hair down doesn't have those connotations. No one thinks that you're in rebellion to to gender or into proper authority if if you wear your hair down. You're not an adulterous rebel if you wear your hair loose with no shawl on. How we adorn ourselves matters, though, still matters today. We can abide in the created design that God has put before us to honor him in certain ways that we have. And so we need to adorn ourselves outwardly in ways that affirm biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Not conforming necessarily to to what culture says or what Hollywood says, this is what a woman should look like, this is what a man should look like. But looking to God's word, taking our cues from that, and then applying it culturally. There are meant to be distinctions. They are not meant to be flattened out. When we flatten these distinctions out, we are dishonoring not only ourselves but our authority as well. So to honor God and his good design, we don't flatten out these distinctions. We don't erase them. We don't just not talk about them and sweep them under the rug. No, we talk about them when they come up in the scripture. And we say, we need to abide by this because this is God's word. He gave us a design and he is good and this design is good. And so we abide ourselves in in certain ways. So this means for all of us, for sure, no cross-dressing, right? Men, don't, don't come in a dress. Look like a man. Women, when you come, don't try to look like a man. Look like a woman. Those are good things. These are ways to outwardly express to everybody, to the church, to the public, and to God himself, that we are under your divine design, that we celebrate and think that your design of gender, male and female, is a good thing, and we want to live in light of that. Now, when we think about gender distinctions, they have been under attack for a while now. We're not crossing new ground where we're at today. This is an old story, just another chapter. But it is definitely under attack and it's heating up. And what we need to do as believers is turn to the word, know what it says, and remember, not even if we can't understand it all, remember God's goodness. Remember his design. And even when we don't understand it, it's good. It's good for us, even when we don't get it. And so we need to teach this. Teach gender distinctions clearly to our kids. Let them know. Let boys be all boy, and I don't mean just the sinful way and let them do whatever they want. That's what most people say. Just let a boy be a boy. And they just mean let him run crazy and be sinful. That's not what I'm saying. Let them be fully male. And your girls, let them be girly girls. 
This is a way that we can continue to pass on this idea that God has created us, male and female, and that design is good. And so head coverings, that was this cultural application, but this abiding principle that Paul's using. And he kind of continues on. If you look in verse 7, he says, A man ought not to cover his, his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So what is Paul doing again? So even in light of this cultural application, what Paul is doing is in, he's giving us again more evidence for this abiding principle because he's referencing back to creation order. He's saying man came first and then woman. So this is pre-fall. This is pre-sin. This is pre-Corinth. He's saying there's an order here that was given in creation. And this kind of becomes the ground for Paul's argument. It's rooted within the Trinity. It's rooted within created order. And so we have nowhere to run or hide when we're applying it to our culture as well. There's distinctions here that are good. And so Paul is well aware when he references this. He he knows Genesis 2. He knows Genesis 1 through 3. He knows that both male and female were created in the image of God. He, He knows that both male and female are image bearers. He's not aloof to that fact. He's not talking about equality. I think that has to be clear in our age because we get so often skewed with one or the other. We're skewing either distinctions or we're skewing equality. And and Paul doesn't want us to do either one of those things. He's not referencing equality, but he is referencing the creation account to be the ground for his argument for distinctions here. Man was created first and then woman created out of man to be a helpmate for man. And so he says, since woman came from man, she is to honor man. She is to honor this man. In other words, she is meant to be his glory. But it's different for man. Men are meant to be the glory of God. And so the the way he applies it, he says, women honor men by wearing this head covering. Honor proper authority. Be the glory of man by wearing this head covering in Corinth. Men, be the glory of God. Honor him by not wearing one. By going without one. In other words, there are different roles given in gender pre-fall, and they ought to be observed because God is good, according to the distinctions within this culture. And then he lands us with verse 10. Great thought. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now, I think verse 10 seems to be a continuation of an argument that for these head coverings culturally applied. So let's look at the structure real quick of verses 7 through 10. I think this is helpful. Verse 7, men shouldn't wear head coverings. Verse 8 and 9 are the support for this, creation order. This is how it goes. This is support for verse 7. But verse 10, there he says, therefore, women should wear head coverings. And so what he's doing is he's kind of equalizing verse 7 and verse 10. These are equal, and verse 8 and 9 are kind of drawing the line of why these things are upheld. So then we get to, for this reason, because of the angels, the women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So what does that mean? Because of the angels. What's he talking about there? And I gave this hours of study and meditation, and I didn't come up with anything. So I don't know. Like, that's a pretty simple way of putting it, right? How's that for study? Like, this is, this is what you want me to do, right? And I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what this means. I don't know if anybody knows what this means. I'll give you a few options. How about that? Option one, this kind of refers back to Genesis chapter 6 with the Nephilim. They thought that maybe the head covering was a protection for them from these evil angels. I don't think that one's it, but maybe it is. I could be wrong. Like I said, I don't know. So not wearing this was not just showing off the beauty, but it was kind of exposing yourself to to some lustful angels. 
Option two, angels are, are kind of present within divine worship and you honor God and honor them who are in this worship gathering with you, along with you, um, and not offending them by, by living in such a way that would honor the design which God gave. Maybe that's it. Or another option is that this, this thought that angels are going to be judged by men. And so men and women, both, they're going to be judged by Christians. They're going to be judged by the saints. And so what women should do is exercise authority in these kind of less significant things because they will have something, a judgment over something so much more significant. Now, I don't know. Those, that's your kind of your, your options there if you want to slide into one of those. Or you could just say, I don't know, like I do. If, I, if you had to, t- had to tell me, if I had to tell you, I would guess probably option two, that within this corporate gathering, within this corporate worship, the angels are uniquely present always giving glory and honor to God, and that we honor them and honor God when we live within these distinctions that we were made to have, and that we, we show that we are in submission to God as they would want us to be, as they are in submission to God. But that's just my best guess. But Paul, to these Christians, what he's telling them is that there is an, a created design that you need to abide by in submission to not only the design, but to the designer as well. And so he's taken this abiding principle He's given it this cultural application in, in kind of addressing this problem that some of the women in the corporate gathering was having there. So as we continue on, he, he has to add a little bit more. And so in verse 11 and 12, he adds this kind of needed qualification. So we have abiding principle, cultural application, and now a needed qualification. If you look in verse 11 and 12, it says, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. And so keep going with me. Like we're, we're still climbing the hill. We're almost there. Through this difficult passage, here's what is clear. There's gender distinct, distinctions. There's clear, that's clear for us. There's, there's male head, headship. There's, there's women in submission to proper authority. But Paul has to add this here, that he, he wants them to know in arrogant Corinth, where they're, they're prone to skew things and get things out of balance and out of whack, he wants them to know that men and women are both interdependent. That is to say that the woman came from man, but now every single man is born of a woman. So there's interdependence between the the genders, and all of them, he says, depend upon God. How's that for unique design? That woman came out of man, but now every single person comes out of woman. It's unique that our God gave it this way, and he says, all of you are dependent upon him. So there's some interdependency between the genders, but all dependent upon God. And so what I think he's doing is saying, when you look at verses 2 through 10, let no one, man or woman, misconstrue what's being said in these verses. This is not a value statement in verse verse 2 through 10. This is not an equality statement in verses 2 through 10. You are distinct, but you are equals. You are equally dependent upon one another. You are equally dependent upon God. Now, I got a picture up here that I thought was this great idea of, of kind of equal but different. And it kind of out a little fuzzy, but you, you get the idea. So here we have polygons. Polygons, anybody? Two polygons. That's what I'm going with. You can see that they have different colors. They have different shapes, but same surface area, same area within them. There's some differences here, but there's also a lot of things that are the same. They have equal perimeter, but they're different shape. And you could say that there's different uses for these polygons, but none of them has some intrinsically more value than the other. Might have use in some way, might, might have use in the other, especially if you're paying, playing Tetris. Like certain times, these might be more or less useful in certain situations, but you know, intrinsically, there's no greater or lesser value. 
If we take red and blue, we can't look at the color and say, well, red is clearly more valuable than blue. No, they're, they're different, but they don't have more or less intrinsic value. So this is what Paul is getting at. You are equal. You need to know this when you look at 2 through 10. If you're prone to think that there's an equality distinction, there's not an equality distinction. There's a function distinction. There's a role distinction, but equally the image bearers of God. And so what the Bible does is it prevents us from looking at the genders and saying they're exactly the same. Bible won't let us do that. They are very distinct. Male and female, he created them. But what it also does is it prevents us from looking at the genders and saying that one is more or less important than the other. And we've seen arguments from both sides of that throughout history. And the Bible would prevent us from saying that as well. Instead, what the Bible points us to is both male and female, distinct in role as part of created order, but it also points to their complete dependence upon God, complete equality before God, both bearing the image of our creator. And so what we need to do as believers is humble ourselves before this and before God, knowing we depend upon him for all things and accept the role that he has given us. He is our God. We are not in charge. And so in our male and female relationships, we reflect God. We reflect created order. We uphold these distinctions because we're imaging our God. And so we have to do this well, not just culturally, but in order to honor our God. Paul knows the Corinthians. He knows sinful human hearts. He knows what arrogance is. He knows what pride is. And so he gives this needed qualification for them and for us to know, hey, I'm not talking equality here. I'm talking roles. And so then he kind of moves us into the conclusion. If you look in verse 13, after giving this needed qualification, Paul concludes, verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if that a woman has long hair, it is for her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. And if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And when Paul says that it's nature... I think what he's getting at is that it's this natural instinct inside every single person, this natural instinct of what's right and what's wrong. And it seems that if this is especially true within sexuality, that there's this natural inclination there given to us by our creator, the sense of right and wrong within gender. And I like what Jonathan Edwards said here when he says, but nature itself, nature in its proper sense, teaches that it is a shame for a man to appear with the established signs of the female sex. There's just something that we feel is wrong about that. So it's part of natural law. It's part of our nature just given to us by creator that we know that there are gender distinctions and that we need to live according to those distinctions from creation. Just as Hitler couldn't come and say, you know what, I didn't know it was wrong to kill all those people and to exterminate a race. I didn't know that was wrong. No, we wouldn't let him say that. Because there's this natural law at play. You know within you, given you, that there is something wrong here. And we can't say the same thing. We're male and female. We can't just say, you know what? We didn't know that it was wrong to just do whatever we wanted in regard to gender. No, there's this natural sense that things are different. And so females have this natural inclination to dress like a female. If you were a woman, you, you, you dress like a woman. I didn't have to teach my daughter to love dresses. Yeah, sure, I nurtured it. Absolutely, I wanted her to like that. But I didn't make her want to wear dresses. Her favorite color is purple. I didn't do those things. Those were natural to her. She was inclined toward those things. I didn't do that. I want to nurture it, but I didn't put that in her. The same with men. They naturally shy away from culturally feminine things. And so if we put on a shirt, don't say that it looks cute. You know, like we're inclined away from these things, right? 
We don't wear bows in our hair. I'm inclined away from that, right? Because it's culturally considered a feminine thing. Chick flicks, even if you thought it was going to be good, even if you maybe even liked it, you probably still wouldn't want people to know, right? Because it's a chick flick, right? You don't want them to know, like, I'm a man. That's this natural inclination that Paul is talking about. There's one time I was at a uh, thrift store and I bought a shirt, very good colored shirt, looked just like it would be great shirt, blue, red, took it home. I was even shopping with a couple guys, just a real quick stop, like, all right, got a shirt, button up shirt. I take it home. I start to wear it for the first time and I'm like messing things up because the buttons were on the wrong side. And I'm like, what, what is going on with this shirt? <laughs> Found out like this women's shirt was in the men's section Totally not gender specific in terms of color. But when I found out, Catherine's like, oh, no one will ever know. And I'm like, I know. I know that this is a women's shirt. It buttons on the wrong side. So I, I couldn't wear it. I had to give it back. Went right back to the thrift store. It's still out there. Maybe one of you guys has it. When we had kids, we, we did not find out the gender of any one of our children. And the first one especially, it was like really hard to pick out gender neutral things, especially kind of for the, the things that would remain within a room, like bedding and all this kind of stuff. We were really careful and we, we helped one another like, no, that looks like a girl thing or that looks like too much of a boy thing because it matters because there is an order here and it matters that we uphold God's divine design, that it's good. And so women wearing a head covering in Corinth was, was acting in a way that was in accord with God's design. It was acting within a way that was in accord with God himself. It was a sign of, of, of women fulfilling their role in creation. And he says kind of men with short hair, that was the same thing. It was them fulfilling their role, living within divine design. And so hair and head coverings were the thing that, that distinguished these genders, especially in public worship. And so here we come to it, right? Like this is what you want to know. Should we wear head coverings now? Like should we be doing this? And I think the answer is no. That the fundamental principle should be upheld, right? There's distinctions within male and female. But no one is saying, if you're not wearing a head covering, that you're just in, re in rebellion to God and to your husband and to all the pastors. It's not a cultural thing for us anymore. We need to know that there is a distinction between male and female in role, that it's part of God's good design, and we uphold those things. If we lived in Corinth, we would say, wear a head covering, but we're not in Corinth. And those things have different connotations now. In Corinth, wearing your hair down, wearing no covering, it meant rejection of all of God's design. It had connotations of adultery. And today, we do things in a manner that's different. We still do things in a manner that show we're in submission to God and his design and submission to biblical male leadership. But the point that Paul is getting at is that your attitude, even your outward adornment, your demeanor, they can all be part of living within this design. They can all be part of rebelling against or living within God's good design. And so you don't have to wear a head covering, but you should always abide by this principle, showing outwardly even that you are in submission to biblical headship. Men, should you have short hair? Somebody need to call the, the Robertson clan in Louisiana and tell them like they need to cut their hair off because it's too long. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that every man should have short hair. I think the fundamental, fundamental principle should be upheld though. There's a distinction, and we live within light of that distinction. And so men, we shouldn't wear dresses. We shouldn't put bows in our hair because that is something that, that women do. And our outward adornment and demeanor, they matter. Our attitudes show that we're either honoring or dishonoring God and his good design. That there are distinctions, and we need to live within light of them, even culturally. And so Christians, 
what we do here is we take this passage and all that's there, all that we don't understand, we, we, we can say, we, we see distinction here. We see that there's a difference and we want to uphold it and we want to celebrate it because what is happening is it's being attacked and being destroyed and it's not leading us in good places. It's a train going off the tracks thinking there's freedom and it's only going to be wreckage. And so we need to be the people that not only celebrate it but are ready to welcome people in that haven't celebrated it and that have wrecked it because it's happening. There's a good design here given to us by a good designer. And I love what one commentator said when he said, human beings must give glory to God by being what God intended them to be. And at the same time, obediently to be what God intends them to be is the highest glory that human beings can achieve. Living within the design given to us by this designer is one of the highest glory that we can achieve. Not rebelling against it. Not erasing all this thinking that this makes us the same and that we're all equals now. But by withholding and upholding these distinctions between us and saying they're good. And that God, who's given them, is good. Because there is a divine design. It's given to us in God. It's seen within the Godhead. It's seen within the Trinity. And he's a good designer. And we're to abide within this design in submission to him. It's good. And he's good. And so how we dress, how we act, how we wear our hair, what kind of covering is on our head, our demeanor, all of these can indicate this good design. And they can all point to a good designer. Or they can point somewhere else. And isn't that the issue that Paul's getting at when he starts chapter 11? That you're, you're gathering together for a purpose. And that purpose isn't to draw attention away from God, but to give it to God. And so you need to express yourself, live in such a way, and so that you can live in accordance with this designer and so bring glory to him. So whether we eat or drink whether we wear a head covering, whether we wear our head down, hair down, whether we wear bows or not, whatever we're to do, we're to do it so that God might be glorified. And so Paul, he addresses this issue of head coverings in corporate worship because the glory of God matters. And that glory of God matters so much that God didn't just leave us to ourselves, but he came down amidst us. And he didn't just leave us here to, to do what we wanted to with gender distinctions and gender roles came to show us the way. In fact, he came to be the way. See, Jesus, what he did was he came and lived the life that we could never live, perfectly in obedience to all the design that the designer had given him. He came to do the will of his Father in humble submission to his will. He came to die. He died the death that people like us deserve to die because we've distorted our image We've messed up this image that we bear of our creator. And Jesus came to set it right, came to restore. And so this is what we celebrate as believers, that there's a designer, that there's a design, and that Christ came to rescue us from our distortions of it. This is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper. We're recognizing that we have messed up big time that we have distorted not only our gender, we have distorted we have distorted hearts before God where we want to bring glory and attention and honor to us rather than to our creator. And so Jesus comes to set us free, to rescue us. And he gives us this divine meal, the sacred meal that says, I came to rescue you and you have been bought with my blood. And so when we come today to this table, we're remembering that Christ lived the life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we deserve to die, that he rose from the grave, and that all those who put their trust in him are rescued. 
and will one day see everything restored to its proper and ultimate design. And so we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. And remember that as we come and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice. You're saying when you do that that you've trusted it in Christ, that you belong to him, that you've been bought with his blood. And so if you're not a believer, don't take this meal. It's fine to stay in your chair. We want you to take Christ. We want you to know him. If you don't know him or you want to know him, like, come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. But if you're a believer, remember what Christ has done for you. And take this meal knowing that he's coming again to restore it all. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your design. We thank you for being a good designer. One we didn't deserve, one we couldn't earn. But God, one that you, you gave us yourself freely. You said, come without money and buy. And that's what we want to do. We want to remember that even now as we take this meal, that we didn't come based on our merits or our work, but we come because of Christ. We come because of his blood, which speaks a better word for us than we could ever speak. We come because Christ filled the gap for us. He bridged what we could never bridge. And that not only did he bridge it, but he brought us along with him and welcomes us in as family and brothers. God, for Christians here today, when we celebrate this meal, may we be worshiping you and giving glory and honor to you, our head, the head of this church, the head of us as believers. And I pray if, you're, if there are unbelievers here that they wouldn't take this meal, but they'd take you, Christ. And they would see that you are good and that there is nothing else that satisfies like you, that there is nothing else that can set them free like you. And God, may they live according to their design, and we are all designed to bring glory and honor to you. And so I pray for those who don't know you to submit their lives to your headship, good headship. God, be honored in our taking of this meal. When we see one another, may we be encouraged by each other's faith as we're saying, this blood purchased me. I live for Christ now. My life's not my own anymore. May we be encouraged as we take this meal together that we are unified underneath our head who is Christ and that we are saying you have won the victory and we know you're coming again.